Even as young children, we learn very quickly that not everybody means what they say, and not everybody does what they say they will do. For this reason, in this reality, children often require a promise when you tell them that you are going to do something if they're going to ultimately believe you. Without a promise, your and my word oftentimes means very little to them at all. Unfortunately, when we become adults, oftentimes promise do very little to calm our fears. And a part of that reason is because we've too often been on the raw end of broken promises. There have been promotions that never came, promised promotions that never came, changes in politics that never materialized, and even promises made at the sacred altar of marriage that proved over time to simply be empty. Now, we are in a bad place when we get to the point that we simply cannot believe the promise that somebody ultimately makes. But yet this is the very place that God's people in the northern kingdom of Israel had come. They were in a place where they were, uh, they were, the chaos was around them, coupled by the impending judgment of God that was to come on them. And they came to a place where they were having real difficulty believing a sovereign promise that God had made their forefather Abraham so many years before. We read of that promise in Genesis chapter 12 and verses 1 through 3. There it says, God said to Abraham, he says, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. How in the world were they going to be made a great nation by God when in just a short while the majority of those in the northern kingdom were going to be cut down by the sword by the Assyrians. How in the world were they going to be blessed when God in his judgment was going to take them out of the land of blessing? How in the world were they going to be a blessing to all the other nations when they were going to be taken into captivity by their enemies? You know, it's really hard to believe the promises of God when things don't seem to be going your way. And so God's people from time to time, just like during the time of Amos, were in desperate need of assurance. And we have a God who loves to bring assurance to his people. And what we find here in this text is that in order to comfort his people and to remove their fear and trepidation, God reaffirms his original promise to them by providing for them even more promises. He says, oh, you don't believe that promise? Well, let me give you some more promises so that you believe that promise. So the crazy thing about this is that unlike God and the promises of man, God's prom- God always keeps his promise. So here in this last portion of the last chapter of Amos, we see three promises that he, he says will be fulfilled when the promised Messiah comes. I think this is a wonderful way for us to be able to prepare for Christmas at the realizing of all the blessings that come or some of the blessings that come when the promised Messiah comes. So three promises we want to look at this morning. First of all, we want to look at the promise of security. When the promised Savior comes, there is a promise of security. Look, if you will, in verse 11, the Bible says, In that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. Just as God was so incredibly faithful to make a promise to Abraham, he was equally as faithful to also reiterate that promise to his descendants, to Isaac, to Jacob, and even to David. 
In fact, we see that same promise echoed to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 13. There, God promised David, he says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever." Now, something to keep in mind in light of that promise is, is Old Testament promises and in, 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 in prophecies oftentimes two, have two aspects to it, two parts to it, an immediate fulfillment and a future fulfillment. The immediate fulfillment of this promise was that David was going to have a son by the name of Solomon who was going to do what David failed to do. He was going to come and he was going to build a, a more permanent temple made of stone and mortar for God to be able to dwell This is something David was never able to do because of his sin, his moral failure, and because the blood that he ultimately shed. The only thing he was able to do was to be able to build this makeshift booth, which we call a tabernacle. That's what's in in, in mind here in verse 11, this tabernacle that wasn't permanent. So that was the first part of the fulfillment of that promise to David. But there was a future greater fulfillment to come. This fulfillment with Solomon was just a shadow of greater things to come. Who he's ultimately speaking of, that who would come from his body, from a direct line of his family, would be the very Messiah, Jesus Christ. He's the one that was come. And when he came, he would establish a kingdom that wasn't fractured and wasn't weak, but one that would ultimately come that would be forever. One that would ultimately be eternal. When he describes David's, uh, David's kingdom as being a booth of David, those words mean weak, um, susceptible, and temporary. And when we talk about God's kingdom coming, we're talking about eternal. This would have brought real faith. This would have been real comfort to God's people at this point. Why? Because they long for the days of David. The, the, the time of David and him being a king over the people, these were the greatest days in the history. This is the high point of, of Jewish history. And they constantly were looking back, wanting to be able to get back there. But they didn't want to experience those times of David just over uh, in a period of time. They wanted to be able to have the security of experiencing that for all time. And not just for some of the time. And that was the problem for the people. Sometimes they were in a relationship with God. And sometimes God was casting them out of the land. Which represented security in a relationship with them. Because of their sin he would cast them out. That's precisely what was happening to the people during Amos. The northern kingdom. They were disobeying God to the point that he said enough. And he cast them out. Suggesting that guess what? You, your judgment is coming upon you. And you are no longer going to be in that relationship with me as I had promised you. Why? Because you failed to obey me. So this was bad news for the people. So when Jesus Christ, or when the Messiah comes, he's going to make sure that for the first time in their history, they have the stability to actually stay in the land, to stay in relationship with God. We see the promise. Look at verse 15, the very last verse in this section. He says, I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. Now, why is it, how is it that they would finally stay in the land forever and not be dispersed because of their disobedience? Is it because they're finally going to get the hang of this whole righteousness thing? Are they finally going to overcome their sin? No. 
No, no, no. Up to this point, they're staying in the land and staying in a right relationship with God was depending on their ability to be able to keep all the laws of God, which they failed to do. He says, but when the new king comes, when the Messiah comes, I'm going to make you a new covenant. He says, you to stay in the land, to stay in that security and a relationship with me will no longer depend on your ability to be able to keep the law. It will depend on my ability to keep the law. And he comes and he fulfills it perfectly. He he is tempted in every way, but he sins not. So Jesus comes and he says, hey, listen, you haven't had security because your security depends on your obedience. Now you will have eternal security because your right relationship with God is going to depend on my obedience. That is eternal security. Now, listen, I have to admit something, confess something. And I don't know how you're going to take this coming from your pastor. It's, I've never said this or admitted this to anyone before. But I, in, I at this particular moment, live with six women. And... Um, To specify, one of them is my wife, and five of them are my beautiful, gorgeous, awesome daughters. And uh, and, uh, they are all very unique, wonderful, beautiful. I'm amazed by them. And one thing they are, though, is they are beautifully complex. Every single one of them, beautifully complex. Any man who sits back and says that they finally have figured women out is a bold-faced liar. Amen, men? (laughs) And I realize that no matter how much attention I spend to each one of these women in my life, that I am never, ever going to fully understand them. But there's one thing I've come to understand, and I'm absolutely sure of this, is that the one thing I know is that these women love security. They love the sense of security. In fact, they thrive when there is an environment of security around them. Do you remember high school? Think way back, for some of you, not very long ago. Uh, but think back to high school. Do you remember all the girls in the school, who they really seemed to like? Who do they seem to like? The bad boys. Do you remember this? Uh, the bad, some of you are like, no, this, this, is, this at least was true in my high school. Maybe things have changed. They love the enigmas, the mysteries. They love the guys that they really didn't, couldn't predict exactly what they were going to do. They, they were free spirits. One moment here, one, moment's not, one moment not. And that used to drive me crazy. I'm like, why don't any of them want a good guy? I'm a good guy. So I went dateless, right? And so finally, you find out that that may be true when they're young, when they're girls, but when they become women, that all changes. And this became evident to me at our 20th year reunion, which was some time ago, our high school reunion, because not a one of those girls who were attracted to the bad boys, hardly any of them were, were married the bad boy. In fact, most of the bad boys were actually still single. Now, I know some of you are sitting back going, I married the bad boy. Good for you, all right? But, <laughs> but overall, the reason for that is because women love and thrive in security. When a woman is trying to to raise children, bear children, take care of children, trying to take care of a home, trying to look after a husband, trying to oftentimes even have another full-time job where, where, where they're making income that's coming into the family when we're doing all these things, the last thing in the world she wants from her husband is mystery. The last thing she wants is, 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 is a free spirit who's not going to show up on time, that's not going to be able to keep a job, that's not going to be able to keep a paycheck coming home. Can I hear an amen, ladies? And this is the last thing they want. What they want is that security of a man who is present no matter what. 
that, that, that he will be there for better or worse or richer and poorer in sickness and health until death do them part. Without that security, she struggles, but with it, she thrives. This is exactly the same as the bride of Christ, the church. The church thrives in the security of the bridegroom, Jesus Christ. I praise God that he is forever faithful to provide and that he's forever faithfully present and that he made a new covenant upon his coming that said that he would securely keep us to himself as his people, never ever casting us out for better or for worse. And even when death does us part, he won't allow it. He is always faithful. This is what those in Amos' time could not enjoy. They could not enjoy that, 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 that peace and that security of knowing that it did not depend on them, that it all depended on God to be in a right relationship. This is why, this is why, uh, um, this is why David says when he falls morally with Bathsheba, kills her husband, Psalm 51 verse 11, he says, Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Don't take them away. Don't go away. I don't want to lose this anymore. And so what we find in the scriptures is later on, he'll come and he'll say, hey, listen, in the book, in John, in John, we'll see that, bring that scripture up real quick. John, you're going to bring it, John 637. In John 637, you go back and you'll be able to read that verse and he'll sit there and he says, I will not lose anybody that my father gives to me and I will never cast them away. What's the difference? The coming of Jesus Christ the completion of what he promised to be able to do. What does this mean? This promise is a promise of security. And what it means for us is that you and I, even though God comes and he breaks the bond of sin for us, you and I struggle in many times and in many ways in sin, yes? But the security comes that when we're working through that, Jesus doesn't sit there and go, I've had enough of you. I've given you enough time. I'm gonna throw you off. What he allows us to do is a secure environment that he continues to bless us and extend his mercy to us. Listen, if you're thinking all the time about losing your salvation because you've been too sinful, you can't then use the graces and the mercy in your life to work on and become what God has ultimately intended you to do. So I love the fact, and there's, there's times in my life, and maybe this isn't you, but there's times that I don't even know there's sin in my life, and through the reading of the word and study or the truth of somebody else, the, the Bible holy, uh, illuminating sin inside of my life that I didn't even know it existed there. And I could become so overwhelmed because I realized that that has a greater grip on me than I ever thought before. And what brings me comfort, and when I begin to get down and go, man, how can this still be in my life after all these years? And there is even in me sometimes where I sit there, and am I, am I truly in the faith? How can this be in a believer in Jesus Christ? And what I hear, and as I remember the sending and the promise of the coming Messiah, he says, hey, remember, this doesn't depend on you holding on to me. This whole thing depends on me holding on to you. That's the security we receive with the coming of the Savior. There's a promise of security, but there's also a promise of unity. Now look, if you will, in verse 12. He says that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name declares the Lord who does this. One of the key words here is the word Edom. The word Edom in the Old Testament was used by the Old Testament prophets to refer to all the peoples and all the nations that were in opposition to God and his, and his people and his kingdom. And so notice this, what we find is, if you think about the Old Testament, all we find is one group of people, the Israelites, 
the people of Israel, who are actually can be called without question the people of God. All the other nations, all the other Gentile nations are in opposition to God. They are the people of Edom. They're in opposition to God. So in all of the Old Testament, there is only one nation that is submitting themselves to God and being blessed by God, while all the other nations of the world are disobeying God and being cursed by God. The problem with this is this is never God's original plan. God had never planned only to bless only one group of people or one type of people. His plan was to, to, to make sure that he's blessing people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people group. Now, how would he go about doing this? Well, when the Savior came, he came by calling people by his name. That's a phrase there. Do you see in that verse? They, they, those people who are called by my name. Now, the origin of that phrase, you've, you've probably heard it before, is found in the Old Testament. And it was used when a king would overcome or he would conquer a particular land, a city, or a nation. And when he would overcome it, and those people would finally come to the point where they relented where they were no longer fighting that king, but they were bending a knee in, in, in acknowledgement of his sovereign rule over them, that king then would refer to that group of people as people who are called by my name. And so what we have here is when Jesus Christ came, when he was born and he lived on this earth and the promise of the Messiah came, the bonds of sin and death were broken. And those who were alienated from God became, uh, uh, because of their rebellion, now became his people when they bowed the knee willfully submission to him. Which means they were not only unified with Christ, they were unified with one another. Now Jews and Greeks, all the people in the world, which once were divided, were now unified because of their mutual submission to the one ruling king. This last week, I was talking with a close friend of mine. And you know what? You need to encourage me to talk with other people in the ministry because every time I do, I go, thank you for Mercy Hill. Every time I talk with one of these gentlemen, I just sit back and I go, I, God, thank you. I'm so undeserving of the people who are here. You're amazing. I love you. Merry Christmas. All right? And so, so that's, that's it for me. And so he was sitting back and I go, brother, what's, what's the frustration? I know he had struggled. And he says, it just our church has so many fractures and divisions in it. I said, really, what, what's the cause of that? And he goes, well, man, you know, they disagree with music. Some want contemporary, some want traditional, some want this, some want that. And he goes, I go, but what's, what's the problem now? That's, that's been a problem for a long time. He goes, now the problem is who we're going to call as a worship leader to be able to come to our church. And I said, well, what's the problem with him? And he says, there's not a problem with him. He's amazing. I go, the guy is unbelievably godly. He's, he's, got, he's, edu- he's well-educated. He's an incredible vocalist. He's great with music. He can lead, he can lead traditional music and, and contemporary music. And he blends these things together perfectly. And I said, well, what is the problem? And he goes, well, there's no problem with me, but there's some in the church. I said, what's the problem with some in the church? He said, he's a man of color. But because he's a man of color, people are having a really hard time. And what they've done is they've basically been working behind the scenes trying to cause disunity within the church. And basically what they're saying is, hey, listen, we don't want a man of color to come and to be able to lead us in worship. And I said, well, brother, listen. And so I start getting angry on the phone. And I start saying some things. He goes, Lo, it's not me that's doing it. It's the people in the church. He goes, back off. And I go, I can't help. This makes me so angry. And I said, what did you say to them? You've got to approach them, and You've got to confront them. That's sin. And he says, I have. So what did they say? 
And he goes, well, one gentleman that I ended up approaching who was really masterminding this whole thing, when I approached him and discussed this with him, he said to me, he said, listen, I know this is wrong and this isn't even what God wants, but it's the way that I grew up and it's what I want. God's just gonna have to forgive me. Now, let me ask you a question. All of this conversations and all these actions of these group of people are taking place right at Christmas. Now, let me make sure I understand that doesn't necessarily make it worse. I mean, it's bad no matter when these things are being said and when these attitudes are had and when these actions are being done. Would you agree? Amen? Always. However, I think that it's especially ironic that it's being done around Christmas. Do you believe that that gentleman, and we're not trying to be overly harsh, we're not trying to be overly critical, but do you honestly believe within what you've heard Do you honestly believe that that gentleman and those people who are doing that have any idea what Christmas is about? Do you think they have any idea what it was that this promise of a Savior who would be born in that manger, what he was here to accomplish to do? I don't think they would. See, Ephesians 2.14 tells us this, For he himself, speaking of the coming Messiah, is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. He came to unify, not to be able to divide, but the unity would come by the equal submission to us, to the conquering king who would come. When Jesus came, that which divided us, listen, ethnicity, color, sex, social, economic backgrounds, all of those things were destroyed by the work of Christ on the cross. And for all of those who recognize that work and submit themselves to him as the conquering king are unified as people, who are called by his name. For that purpose, Galatians 3, 28 says this, for there is neither Jews nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The coming of Jesus, he made unity possible. He made unity in marriage possible. He made unity in friendship possible. He made unity among ethnic groups possible. He made unity even in a church like the one that I just mentioned possible. But the key to that unity is a mutual submission to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So there is a promise of security. There is a promise of unity. And finally, there's a promise of satisfaction. Now look at verse 13 for a moment, if you will. Verse 13. Verse 13 says this. Don't you love when a pastor looks at his watch? Don't you love that? I mean, normally I, I see you doing it. And so, uh, so everyone keeps looking at their watch. So I'm afraid that it's, it's time. We still have a couple moments, but it just means that I love you. All right. And so I don't want to go too long. So verse 13 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of the grapes, who, uh, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. And they shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. Just as Jesus was successful where David failed, so too was Jesus, did Jesus succeed where Adam failed. You remember Adam, don't you? Uh, not our previous worship leader long ago, but Adam, the first Adam, uh, the, the, the representative of all humankind, the first man ever created. What's beautiful about this, this situation is he was the representative of all humankind. He was the best that you and I had to offer, and he failed. 
and he sinned. And when he sinned, all of humanity fell under sin and fell underneath the curse of God because of that sin. You with me? But it wasn't just humanity that fell. All of creation fell. All of creation fell underneath the curse of God and was tainted and marred. And now you could no longer clearly see the glory of God as you had when God had first created it. Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 through 19, we read there, it says this, it says, it says uh, God said to Adam, he says, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, men, no, I'm just kidding, all right, because you have listened to the voice of your, your wife and have eaten the tree in which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. Now, what he's saying is because of the curse, you cultivating this earth is going to be really, really hard and difficult. It's going to make you sweat. It's going to be hard. It's going to be frustrating. Now, this is not how God had created it from the beginning. In the beginning, before the fall, he had told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. Here was God's original plan. Did you know work was in God's original plan? What? Yes. God's original plan was for you and I to be able to use the raw materials of what God has provided us in this world and to be able to work them and cultivate them and create things from them that would ultimately demonstrate how glorious and how wonderful God is. But when they first began to do it, it was much easier than it was now because creation was working with them, not against them. After the fall and the earth is cursed, now you have these crazy things called thorns and thistles. And now it's as though the world is kind of working back. You're working hard, but you're not seeing the production that you would ultimately want to see because of the curse. There's toil, there's sweat, there's frustration. And the reason for that is when you work, the earth is working against you with drought and pestilence and disease and all of these things. So now this thing that God had created them to do is much harder and there's no joy and it's full of frustration. They're working 100% and they're only getting a 10% return. Sometimes that return is completely nullified and wiped out because of the curse that is within the earth. This kind of reminds me a little bit of parents who take parenting classes before they have children. Now, I'm not dogging them. Let me tell you, I think that's probably a wise thing. I mean, if you have to take a class and a test to drive a car... You should probably take some kind of class and some type of test to be able to lead human beings, right? To raise human beings. So it's probably the least that we can do. And you hear somebody and they're like, you know, we just wanted to be the best parents that we can. And you're like, well, good, man. I think that's awesome. You don't want to discourage them. You don't want them to tell them really what's going to come, right? And so what they do is they said, yeah. And I was talking to said gentleman. He goes, yeah, he went to a class. And what do you do? Well, they teach you how to change a diaper. And they, they, they teach you how to change clothes and teach you how to feed the baby. And I'm like, really? How do they do that? And they go, well, they have this, this doll, this plastic doll. And with this plastic doll, you take the diaper and you put it on and everything. And so what they do, I think that's very cute, right? I mean, not to be demeaning, but it's a little plastic baby and they put the you know, little thing on you, make sure that it's all even. And then you get done, they come across the room and you're like, I'm done. And they're like, very good. You're, you, you're ready to be a parent. And you're, and, and you're sitting back there going, the problem with this is it's completely inaccurate. Because when you are trying to change that baby, that baby is going to fight against you. That plastic baby is completely passive. 
But your child, believe it or not, will have a sin nature that goes deep into that child. And the problem is you're trying to put the diaper on. They don't want the diaper on. You're trying to put the pants on, and they are in in rebellion, stiffening up those legs as hard as they can, going, you just try to do it, buddy, right? And they're putting those things on, and you're trying, if they really wanted to be accurate and help the parents, they would have them put a diaper on a squirrel that's high on Red Bull, right? You'd be like, now you're ready. That's exactly what it's going to be like. When Jesus comes to set up his kingdom, the curse that frustrates us all will be broken. What keeps things in this world that God has meant for us to enjoy will be stripped away. And for the first time in the Garden of Eden, nature will work with us instead of against us. That's kind of the point of that passage that I read. The, the picture that God gives there within those scriptures is this. He says, hey, when a guy goes to go to plant some seed and to begin to kind of plow the ground, he's going to run into last year's harvesters. And he's going to be like, what are you guys doing? And you go, well, we're still harvesting. And you're like, what do you mean? That's not how it normally works. In a fallen world, they harvest. They're done fairly quickly. And then months go by before the guy comes and plows and to be able to sow seed. He says, There is going to be a time when God takes away the curse from the world when everything is supposed to function in the way that it's supposed to, in the beautiful manner, in the satisfying way that it will. And then what will happen is when they come to plant again, they're going to still be harvesting all of the fruit from the year before. It's talking about an abundance of God's blessing. This is precisely what the Bible says in Romans chapter 8, verses 19 through 23. Let me read it for you. It says, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. It says, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of glory for the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of, birth, of childbirth until now, and now only the crea- and not only the creation, but we ourselves. We have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoptions as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So there's work, marriage, family, and friendships. All of these things God has given to be an immense blessing to us. But if we were honest, they're not always the blessing that we really would hope for them to be able to be. And the reason for that is because their work, their toil, put time into it, and you're not always getting everything out of it that you would ultimately, you, you ultimately want. That's what sin does. Sin corrupts. That's what is good. It, 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 it takes away that which is satisfying to us. Now, we will not know the fulfillment of this promise when he comes. When he comes, he's saying, I'm going to strip that all away, and things will be much easier and much more satisfying. And we won't know that fulfillment uh, yet. In Romans chapter 8, according to it, it's happening, but it's not yet fulfilled. In other words, when Christ comes, he will change your heart and my heart in such a way that you and I will find greater satisfaction in marriage, in child rearing, in these things. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is at work with us. But as long as we are still in these bodies that are stained and saturated with sin, we won't know the true fulfillment of what satisfaction means until we meet him in heaven with the Messiah face to face. And here is the promise that he ultimately gives us. And he says, I think, I think that we are, and now what I don't think he's doing is I don't think he's promoting some type of materialism. 
I don't think that he's saying here, and I've heard people say this, is see, what he's really trying to say is true satisfaction comes from having a lot of really good stuff. That's not what he's saying at all. What he's saying is true satisfaction can only be found in the person of Christ who comes and puts to death sin that causes so much frustration in you and me. So when he comes and he is already working to eliminate the frustration of sin, and one day we'll complete that when we're with him in heaven, there will be a satisfaction we experience that we've never experienced before. That's the significance of Christ's birth. So here we are celebrating Christmas, but do we know what the coming of the Savior in this world truly means? It means the promise of security, the promise of unity, the promise of satisfaction. And we can have confidence in his promise because as we read in Numbers chapter 23, verse 19, God is not man that he should lie or the son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? I'm not sure if you really know the significance of Christmas unless you know the Messiah personally. I'm not so sure that you've really understand what true security is until you realize that you have eternal security in Christ, not because you're earning it, but because he earned it on your behalf. I'm not sure you understand what it means to be truly unified and have, 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 have anger and, and dissension pulled away from you between you and God, the amity between you and God, unless you understand the significance of the birth of that Savior, Jesus Christ. And I'm not sure you really truly understand what satisfaction in this morning unless you know him as your personal Lord and Savior. Let's pray this morning. Lord, we love you and we thank you.